Season 2, Episode 10. Hello, everybody. Welcome to UX Podcast coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, Pat Axbom. And James Royal Lawson. Balancing business, technology, people, and society with listeners all over the world from the Cayman Islands to Moldova. David Dylan Thomas. He's an author, speaker, podcast host, UXer, content strategist, and also previous guest on UX Podcast. And in today's chat with David, we discuss ownership, both physical and digital. We get into the importance of paying attention to power balances and applying a social justice lens when working with design. I especially love his idea that comes up in the interview of moving towards a design framing of build, measure, learn, and give back. Today's interview was recorded at the UX conference from Business to Buttons right here in Stockholm. The 2024 edition of the conference will take place on May 24th, and the theme is movement. It invites you as a changemaker to join the movement of working for justice and sustainability in a world facing a number of complex challenges. Read more about the theme, and speakers such as Cheryl Kababa, Christina Joy Whitaker, Chris Nossel, Lou Down, and more, on from businesstobuttons.com. And for 10% off the ticket price, use the promo code UXPODCAST. So, David, when you're talking about um, oh, turning conflict into collaboration and, um, um, and finding a place to meet, to bring out the best for those kind of um, conversations, um, one of the elements you mention is um, like things like you haven't considered. You know, it's like, yeah. I haven't considered that idea. Yeah. It's like... Um, I know that you've been talking in your stay so far in, in Stockholm, Sweden, about the concept of ownership. Yeah. And this has also brought up something that you hadn't considered earlier. Yeah, I, um, I'm an American, and in America, we have very clear definitions of ownership, right? I own this. Everything is owned by somebody. And if that person owns it, they can do whatever they want with it. They can buy it. They can sell it. They can do whatever they want. Um, and... and if anyone wants to do anything with that, they have to get permission. Um, and it being American capitalism, ideally, I charge you for access to the thing that I own. Um, and, and a I've, contract that's kind of like exactly, got to be checked yeah. by have, several lawyers that also cost yeah. you God knows how much to yeah. take you through. And yeah, and the legal the legal aspect is really interesting, but the legal language usually is very strict. Yeah. Um, so, and I've been thinking a lot about ownership lately and what it looks like to think outside of ownership because I've been learning more about uh, Native American and other indigenous traditions that some of which don't necessarily have a concept of ownership, right? It's like, mm. those aren't my strawberries. Those aren't your strawberries. They're just strawberries. They belong to themselves, mm. uh, which again, from my upbringing in an American capitalist system is anathema. Like, what are you talking about? Somebody has to own them. Somebody has to sell them. Um, so <laughs> that already, like that kind of mind lock of ownership is this binary thing. In talking with a friend of mine, uh, Johan Brunson yesterday, um, he was telling me about how in Sweden, there is this concept of you can own property and yet be obligated to let people use it. So if I own property, um, if someone wants to go camping, they can. Mm. And that just blew my mind. This notion of like, 
uh, a complicated, like a liminal ownership where it's like, okay, you own it, but you also have to let people use it, which brings in, I think, an element of that Native American, the land doesn't really belong to anybody. I mean, yeah, you Hmm. quote unquote own it, but also we all get to share it. Like introducing that legally, even I haven't had a chance to read it, but he sent me the actual legal statute, Hmm. having legal language even to describe that just blows my mind. And yes, I had not considered Hmm. a non-binary approach to ownership uh, before, so that's definitely falls into that category. Yeah. Hmm. The shared, that, that particular law in Sweden is, is a really interesting one, and um, it's one of those things you pick up reasonably quickly. When you, it's it's literally called you. every person's right, alle mans rätt. Yeah. yeah. And and it does, of mm. course, come with a little star. Sure. It's, mm. it's not just a free-for-all and mm. like you can, you know, you wake up in the morning as mm. a third person in your bed and you're going, what the hell? <laughs> it, it doesn't quite, I mean, it's not quite as liberal as that. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I can't remember all the details, but one of them is like, you can't, you can't camp too close to someone's property. Exactly. It was too close to the house, to the main house. house. Sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that means, I mean, I have a property where I have calculated that by extension, people can actually camp on my property without me being able to say no. Mm. Uh, also, if pe- people can, I mean, can, they can essentially cross my lawn and stuff like that. It's no problem uh, mm. because of the way I live close to water. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. So in America, we mm-hmm. have this phrase, mm-hmm. get off my lawn, which is yes, sort of exactly. like, yeah. yes. and it's like literally not an option. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, get off my lawn. Go ahead. <laughs> but it, it is a fascinating concept, mm. the whole thing of ownership, is even when I think here in Sweden, at least to that extent, that this mm. is not the full ownership maybe or over the rights to use and utilize that bit of mm. land. Um, there's there's always ownership of something. Mm. And, and here... I know there's, um, there's certain things Swedes joke about, and that's like, um, for example, if you know where the canterell mushrooms are in mm-hmm. the woods, right, you can go into the woods and, and pick the mushrooms. It's one of the kind of like things yeah. that we, we do in Sweden. You go and pick mushrooms or berries. Mm-hmm. Or strawberries. Mm-hmm. But the knowledge of where the best places are for those mushrooms mm-hmm. You own that and you protect that knowledge. Really? It's not. It's not often easily shared mm. between people. It's kind of these jokes that someone might you'd kill for the knowledge of where right, the right, best right. kind of this mushroom patch is in the woods. Now, is that is that a cultural kind of like ownership, or is that like a legal like? Oh, I can sue you because you no, blabbed cultural. the location of cultural, my cultural. cultural. Oh, it's, okay. it's like I mean. Uh, You'd you'd have to have a certain bond with the person who has the information right, 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 or right, relationship right. in order for yeah. them to you know trust you with the knowledge. But but bringing that to a digital context, that also happens then when people didn't realize they were sharing metadata when they're posting photos. So posting photos online of the mushroom place and you didn't realize you had shared the GPS coordinates of the mushroom place. So things like that happened in the beginning. It was like, oh no, you gave it up. Well, this is interesting (laughs) to me because long before uh, I started thinking about this aspect of ownership, Mm. I'd been thinking deeply about um, digital ownership, right? Um, Like, 10, 15 years ago, I was talking about things like, you know, used MP3s, which was an actual concept people actually tried to sell. Mm. (laughs) Just as, again, blowing your mind, it's like, Mm. wait, it's digital. You can't use it's not a physical like yeah and like, then we got nfts yeah well yeah and that's <laughs> so that my the, the root of my hatred for nfts <laughs> comes from already having yeah. explored that territory basically mm. i am not a big fan of artificial scarcity yeah so literally just mm. saying it's rare why because i said it <laughs> right like yeah. really sort of i find very grating but that does get back to this notion of like and i don't know and i would love to learn more about this like what does intellectual ownership look like, like, mm. or or lack thereof, right? Yeah. So, 
I'm starting to get my head around what does a uh, a lack of physical ownership look like or a moderated physical ownership mm. look like. But for intellectual property, which, you know, in America, we absolutely would, you know, if we could mm. uh, uh, make the location of the strawberry intellectual property that I could buy or sell. Like, right. I think part of that um, instinct to make to go full tilt on ownership is a capitalistic one because if mm. I have complete ownership, okay, then I can charge for things. Like mm. if I can charge for that person wanting to camp, okay, then right. let's do yeah. it that way, right? Mm. Um, but yeah, because the the so the the mushroom thing is a voluntary cultural. Hey, let's make this knowledge as scarce as possible mm. for reasons. The flip side of that is like the early days of MP3s and, and file sharing, where it was like, oh yeah, what are you talking about? Like, it would be weird if you if looking at it from a, a cultural perspective. It, it would be weird for me not to share this mm. with you because it's just information. It's not like a physical album. It's mm. zeros and ones. It's just stuff, right? Why would mm. I not share that with you? So it's interesting to me the types of intellectual property that we designate as meant to be. It's okay for it to be like mm. all wrapped up. And versus it's okay for just everybody should have access to it. Right. Yeah. And as, as well, me and Per are both self-employed consultants. And, and I know that both me and Per and this podcast, we, we license under a Creative Commons license. Mm, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, which, again, is another aspect of this digital ownership. We're, we're effectively giving away a, a mm -hmm. lot of content without demanding well, payment in return yeah. and, and so on. And um that's 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 a whole argument about well should you do that should you protect your knowledge as a as a specialist as a yeah. as as an expert in your field uh, you know why would you give all that knowledge away yeah and it's interesting too i think creative commons is to like um intellectual property or copyright as the swedish law about um you own it but you don't totally own it is to like property law yes, exactly. right because that's what it reminds mm. me of because mm -hmm. again it's that notion mm. of the, even the metaphor of the mm. volume dial i took mm. from when people were in the early days of creative commons was saying they were describing creative commons mm. as putting a volume knob on copyright so mm. it's prior to that it was you completely own the copyright and anybody else uses it at all i can sue them or mm. anyone can use it anytime they want without any restrictions it was saying well yeah but what if you actually had some nuance and said, okay, you can use it, but you have to give me attribution or you can use it, but you can't make money off of it. I mean, in a weird way, and I hate to give it credit, but that is kind of what some of the promise of uh, cryptocurrency, not just the dollars and cents version of it, but the, um, the blockchain version of smart contracts, right? Mm -hmm. I can literally make it a part of the DNA of this piece of content how you can use it and, and why and all of that stuff. Like mm. that is, I think, one potential good use, not one anyone's using, but one potential good <laughs> use of, the, of that kind of technology. Mm. But yeah, I'm a big fan now of trying to get outside of the binary. And ironically, I think technology is better suited for this, mm. right? Mm. <laughs> um, uh, but we haven't used it that way. We've used it in technology in a very binary way when in fact technology, because you can get to this very granular level with content, with whatever it is, you could actually be very subtle. Things like Creative Commons, I think, work. I don't think it's a, it's a coincidence that Creative Commons came about post-web because mm. the opportunity for yeah. it was there. Like legally, you could have had those contracts mm. going back since there was copyright. Mm. But it became of age when uh, the digital realm mm. entered. And I, th I suspect that's because there was a lot more potential for subtlety an opportunity to say, oh, anybody can get access to this mm. content. And is it really worth it creating a, a, a basically artificial wall to it 
even right. though at the end of the day, it is zeros and ones. If someone mm. buys it, there's no more or less of it in the world. Like, <laughs> I wonder if that's how that occurred. And mm. also you've got the, the, the whole thing with, with digital artifacts is because they're zeros and ones, they're so easily uh, replicated. Yeah. Whereas in the physical world, yeah, exactly. the of comments is maybe, is, I can see why it'd be later coming in a pure physical world in that, you know, we, there's only so many tables and, right. you know, it's mm. going to take you effort and time exactly. and, and real material to, to create another one, even if it's yeah. identical. Well, there's a service industry aspect to it. Mm. It's like there's a certain amount of effort I have to go into to make another one. I've, so the best example, um, I learned this from Clay Shirky, and I think he learned it from the um, the Why We, why we uh, Cooperate uh, novel. But basically, if you think about like music sharing, if I have a vinyl album and you want to listen to it, I don't have it anymore. I have to give it to you. So that's sharing of ob- of objects. Of, and, you know. it, and every time it's played, it's worn slightly. Yes, that's true. So, so it's exactly, appreciated. Exactly, right. It's, it's lifetime. Now, if I want to make you a mixtape, okay, I can give you the mixtape, and I still have all the music I use to make the mixtape, but there's effort involved. I have to like go through and like actually do mm. it. So there's, that's a sharing of effort. Um, if I share, a, if I make a playlist on Spotify, come on. Right? What have I done? What, like, there's no effort involved. All I am sharing is knowledge, right? Um, if I share an MP3 with you, like, I still have the MP3. Now you have the MP3. They're both perfect. They're literally the same object. Um, that's sharing of information, mm. which gets back to why it seemed weird to restrict the sharing of information, whereas it seemed to make some kind of sense to say, okay, there's effort involved in making that new table, making that new vinyl record, whatever. So, yeah, it's it's been interesting to see that evolve. And now we're actually accepting all over the world digital rights management. We're buying mm-hmm. books, we're buying music that we aren't allowed to share, that we aren't allowed to copy. And let's start already with the CDs and DVDs. Mm-hmm. Sure, you could copy them, but you weren't allowed to. Yeah. And now you can't even lend a person a book. There are like systems they put in place. Like oh, if yeah. you want to lend a book on Amazon, a Kindle book, you can only do that like a limited number of times and then it's done. Now you can't share it anymore with anyone. Well, it's become like software, mm. right? We went yeah. from the sort of more mm. artifact model of, like I said, it's a mm. book. If I have that book, I can share that book with you. I can't use it while you're, well, all that stuff. Mm. To, I think, a uh, guy who wrote um, Dark Nets, I'm blanking on his name right now, but he, he the, the metaphor he used, which I thought was perfect, is we're moving into a world where if you want to pull a book off your shelf, you have to pay first. Mm. Right, like it isn't real yours. Getting back to that notion of exactly. ownership, like it's never yours. That copy mm. of, um, so I'll give you a perfect example. Mm. I got a, a copy, a digital copy of uh, this one Ray Charles song, just because. Plays at the end of the movie, The Sure Thing, for you '80s mm. movie fans out there. Very mm. hard to find, um, but I found it. I uh, got it on Amazon Music, and it was in my library. It was actually on my computer. I had the MP3 download mm. of it. Uh, at some point, my hard drive was compromised, and I lost all of the music on it. But hey, that's the beauty of the internet age. I can just re-download all of it. So I did mm-hmm. that, and guess what? Just Because was no longer there. Mm-hmm. So I went and looked, and it was no longer available. Mm-hmm. So I owned it. I paid for it. Mm-hmm. And effectively, Amazon took it back yeah. when mm-hmm. it came time for them to no longer have the right to sell mm-hmm. it. So that would be so this example of, like, I have a book on my shelf, and then I wake up in the morning, and suddenly that book's not there anymore. It's like... Did I ever really own it then? <laughs> no. The company who made it owned it. They just licensed it to yeah. me. Yeah. So the buy button is misleading because yes. you're not buying it. No, it's, it's a rent <laughs> yes, button. Exactly. It's, yeah. It's a rent yeah. until we say yeah. otherwise yeah. button. Yeah. It's a, it's a, you enter, enter yeah. into a specific contract uh, yeah. button. I can't tell you how many times across my lifetime I've bought the movie Top Gun <laughs> thinking I still have it, but I don't know if I do have it anymore. Yeah. Well, 
I think I've got it on DVD. <laughs> <laughs> that's, is that owning it nowadays? Well, it probably it's a physical thing, isn't it? We've digital stuff on a physical thing. In right, a, but yeah. when that, I mean, that deteriorates over time. Hasn't yet. No. Mm. And you're not allowed to do a copy of it, though. But you can. You can. <laughs> I'm, I'm staying quiet. You're allowed to. I'm staying quiet. Right. So, so, the whole, so the whole digital economy, mm. um, when it comes to digital artifacts, mm. it, it's based on artificial scarcity. Yes. It can't, yeah. just by its pure definition, it can't yeah. be based on anything else other than artificial scarcity. Yeah. And, this is, and this is a conversation. So I did a talk called A Million Medici's at South by Southwest in 20-something-something, and uh, like, like 20 years ago at least. And um, I was basically talking about that conundrum. And where I landed was, my, my hypothesis was that we value things, we pay for things based on how we think about them. And so I think about that physical album or that table as, oh, someone put effort into that, they made it, it's, it is scarce. So I'm going to pay for the thing that's scarce. I'm going to pay more for the thing, the more scarce it is. Oh, it's a diamond table. Okay, that's super rare. Okay, I'll pay a lot for that. When something is zeros and ones, and I know it's zeros and ones, and I know that it is basically infinitely replicable, it's, I have a really hard time paying for that. It's like, no, it's just, it's just like water. It's just infinite. There's no, there's no, there is literally no scarcity there. So I have to invent scarcity. I have to make an iTunes quote-unquote store mm. <laughs> that has all these objects in it that have these album covers that look like physical rare things. But no, the second I download that, there is no more or less of it in the world. So I started thinking about, okay, what is scarce in that scenario? And what's scarce in buying that, you know, Beyonce digital album is Beyonce. She's the part that is, in fact, uh, individual, not replicable, super scarce, mm -hmm. her time, her effort. Yeah. So I Until started now. thinking, well, <laughs> no, <laughs> are you thinking about like digital personas or something? AI. Oh, AI. And, yeah. Well, so we'll come back to yeah. AI. Um, but uh, so mm. her, that, that, that human mm. being is, is scarce. So then I should actually mm. be paying her. Mm. And that's where I started mm. thinking about, and th at the time it was new and now it's mm. pretty normal, but I started thinking about uh, crowdsourced patronage. So things like Patreon, which was like a newborn baby at that point. point. But I was sort of saying, okay, this mm. is the future or this is a future that makes sense with how we think about scarcity, right? Mm. I want to give the money to Beyonce because my bet is, if she's if she has enough money to just live her life and create and not like work in a Starbucks or something, I will then as a result get more art in the world that I want rather than just pay for the art. So that it's been interesting to see that line mature as well, because at least for me, from a scarcity standpoint, that's real scarcity, not artificial scarcity. Mm. I love yeah. that. And also this makes me think that of course, I mean the whole thing of commons is is, is you should there's normally a mutually beneficial aspect to these things. I mean, mm -hmm. like, you know, I, I can, well, Per can camp in my back garden and I can camp in his. That's true, yeah. Um, and, you know, same as, the, you know, if, 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 I, if I tell you where the mushrooms are, you'll tell me where the strawberries are. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost down, it's a good, it's, the, it's commons, it's common knowledge, it's shared common knowledge, it's, it's mutual, mutual beneficial. Um, whereas that gets, that gets much more difficult when you're, when you're stretching the scale. Yeah. And, you know, um, how, how much, if we had a mutually beneficial relationship with Beyonce, right? You know how is how is that balanced in the scale of things? Yeah. Well, um, look, if Beyonce wants to camp on my property, I'm, that's <laughs> fine. That. And if <laughs> I want to camp on her property, if I want us to make yeah. that arrangement, that's yeah. I'm fine with that. And she can camp two nights <laughs> on my property, and I can have tickets to her concert exactly. exchange. Yeah. That sounds exactly. fair. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, what you're talking about though is like mm. the sort of industrialization of that, right? Because you know, Beyonce is a uh, artist at an industrial level, where like there's masses and masses. She's a, she is a one to many, 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 many mm. kind of relationship, but. 
again, like I kind of like tried to think about this at the time was uh, the notion of financial risk, right? So if you know, Disney pays $250 million to make an Avengers movie, uh, they are putting up the financial risk, right? Um, and if that movie's a flop, they're out $250 million. I have no stake in that, right? They make it, I can pay, you know. But since they're assuming all that risk, Absolutely, they can decide how much tech it mm. costs. They should, they can decide who's in the movie, who's not. They can decide what the digital rights are around it. Right? You've put up that much money. Fine, that makes sense to me. What gets interesting is where you have a crowdfunded model where it's like, well, we commonly put up the money. Mm. Like, if you were able to get enough of us together to raise two hundred fifty million dollars, mm. we decided that that was going to happen. And now we actually kind of have a say in like what kind of like digital rights are involved and how much the ticket should cost or should there even be a ticket because I already paid, right? Like it, it really warps how we think about the transactional nature. Mm. Um, and which is the other interesting aspect of it is those crowdfunded kind of scenarios tend to be as much about um, love uh, and fandom as they mm. are about a transactional thing. Like I funded the Veronica Mars crowd Kickstarter. Oh, I did as well. And I, I don't know about you, I didn't do it because I was like, okay, I want exactly one t-shirt and one Blu-ray copy out of this transaction. I was like, no, I freaking love Veronica Mars. Yeah. I want there to be more of it in the world. Even if the movie sucks, I don't care. Mm. I want to be part of this, of this thing that yeah. I love. That was the, the, the motivation. It wasn't a rational economic transaction. That was an emotional, yeah. emotionally charged yeah. um, economic decision. And we're never rational. Well, that's the thing. Like, I think there's something more <laughs> honest about that because yeah. it's, saying, yeah. it's skipping over yeah. the, oh, I'm being a rational, mm. echo, hum, uh, echo uh, human, whatever. Mm. No, I am an emotional pur purpose, a person. Mm. I'm making an emotional mm. purchasing decision because guess what? They all are. And it makes, <laughs> it <laughs> makes me <laughs> feel good because you're describing yes. it now and I can see the passion because yeah. you feel wonderful about it. <laughs> Well, that's how we, on, a, on so an that's individual benefit, on yeah. an individual level. Mm -hmm. Yes, they're mm -hmm. all emotional mm -hmm. decisions. Mm -hmm. I mean, the rationality comes in at, at, at scale, arguably. Mm -hmm. But to get to get, it's interesting. You bring mm -hmm. up the AI thing. I literally uh, two hours ago, I was at the Swedish Museum of Modern Art, the Stockholm Museum of Modern Art, and uh, there was a Laurie Anderson exhibit, which was fascinating. If any all or anywhere in the area, I highly mm -hmm. recommend you go. But uh, one of the first things you see is she tells a story that her, I think, father or grandfather told about his, like, journey to America or something like that. And it's sort of like this total tall tale of, like, oh, yeah, I forgot my first job when I was eight. I was married by the time I was ten. Like, blah, 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 blah. And it's this just really very, like, you know, sort of when you're a kid, you kind of just accept this as a fact. But what she does is she has these photos, very sort of, like, old-timey looking photos uh, on the wall of all those made-up incidents. And then when you get to the end, you look at this thing. It's like, oh, this was generated using one of those, you know, generative AI. Mm -hmm. I think it was Midjourney. Midjourney. And I'm like, it's happened. We've gotten to the point mm -hmm. where, where generative AI art is in a museum. Mm -hmm. Like, that was a legit museum. Like, the Museum of Modern Art in Stockholm is a very, mm -hmm. very real museum. <laughs> like, it's mm -hmm. got its bona fides. Um, like, there's Warhol in there, too. <laughs> you know? But... Um, but yeah, and I'm like, oh, we've hit that point. But we, and like, I know a lot of people would be utterly freaked out that generative AI in a modern art museum, clutching of pearls, you know. But it's like, but it's Laurie Anderson doing it. So I'm like, okay, she, she, a, I didn't realize that, but she's been doing stuff with um, uh, uh, all sorts of generated, generative like machine learning stuff. She was, she got there decades before anyone else. So like, she knows what's up. But she's using it, I think, in this very interesting way. Because what they did was they took those tall tales and then just prompted these sort of photo real things out of it. I'm like, mm. that's a really interesting use of that mm. thing. So in that case, 
if I was doing like a Kickstarter or whatever, like going back to this mm-hmm. model of this collective reciprocal art relationship, mm-hmm. that would be, hey, I'm going to keep contributing to the Lori Anderson Patreon because she is doing interesting things. Mm-hmm. Like I don't owe the AI any money any more than I owe a paintbrush money. I owe Lori Anderson my money or whatever, however I want to express that gratitude mm-hmm. because she is the generator, the actual generator of the art. Interesting. But then going back to the ownership discussion, to build mid-journey, you mm-hmm. had to have a lot of content online that you actually sourced sure. that somebody else created. So you come back to this situation where people created something so that someone else can create something else yeah. that competes with the thing that you made that they took for free. So <laughs> so my, my initial somewhat snarky reaction to that is... Mm. That's art, baby. Because mm-hmm. like, what it reminds me of is uh, early hip-hop, right? Early hip-hop used samples. They used, going back to vinyl, literal mm-hmm. vinyl. They would go in, record dive, find these wonderful, like just little, little tiny slivers of music, like a drum loop, whatever, and just play it over and over and over and build yeah. the most amazing art out of it. Now, did they owe money to the you know, James Brown or whoever's thing they were lifting? Maybe. Um, there's a great uh, quote where, uh, Beastie Boys, um, Paul's Boutique, and Public Enemies, Fear of a Black Planet have between them literally hundreds of samples. And if you listen to hip-hop albums after that point, you'll find maybe one or two samples per album because that's mm-hmm. when digital rights management started to kick in. And if you were to try to make either of those two albums today, it would literally cost you something like a trillion with a T dollars because of all the samples they used so it's like okay yeah. i get that i guess you're mm. compensating people but gee mm. i sure would love another paul's boutique mm. <laughs> you yeah. know what i mean yeah no it's, it's the, the the way mm. the samples have been killed off like that is um yeah, yeah is, is an interesting restraint oh artificial yeah. restraint on creativity yeah, yeah. Mm. But, i mean even the the great artists I mean, going back with the different you know periods of arts mm. mm-hmm. there was also very much you know talking to each other, sending letters to yeah. each other, working together or having yeah. apprentices. Always inspired by you know, like yeah. you'd have, you know, the, the main artist would be mm. starting a picture off and one of his students would finish mm. it or work yeah. on it a bit. Mm. There's, there's so much mm. spreading of, yeah. of, of copying mm. of what yeah. you do. Now, and I think an important distinction mm. here is mm. when Public Enemy is lifting James Brown, James Brown is already okay. James Brown is not mm. suffering at that point. Mm. A lot of the art, because uh, generative AI lifts at scale, yeah, mm. You don't even have to do the math to know that there are a large number of artists who are suffering, who probably could use that recognition, right? Mm. So there is, whenever you have these kind of discussions, you have to talk about power. Mm. And the power balance between, you know, Beastie Boys and the theme from Jaws, and John Williams and the theme from Jaws, which they lifted for Eggman, um, that is a much more equal, if anything, the power balance is with John Williams in that one, right? Versus um, a generative AI thing that's pulling from 50 different people who are just creating fan art um, out of the love of it. And like, you know, are, if, all, if, if we lived in a just world, would actually be getting thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars because they're really making these beautiful things. Mm. And the AI that is pulling from it to create, you know, uh, art for a Wired article, right? Like, okay, I feel like, you know, Wired is doing better in that situation than the yeah. person. So I think... It would be interesting to have some kind of, you know, canonical way of basically ranking, <laughs> sort of saying, okay, AI, you can pull from this because these people are fine. Like, pull whatever you want from Disney. They're fine. They're not going to suffer if I pull together a bunch of Disney images. But this person over here in Kansas who's like making, you know, uh, 22 bucks an hour working at Home Depot, 
yeah, maybe not that person, <laughs> right? <laughs> that would be an interesting filter to put on your AI yeah. and say, do not exploit click, you know? <laughs> mm. It's so interesting. Going back to Beyonce. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so if we replicate her and start making music with her voice mm -hmm. and you don't realize it at first that it's not her, does that matter to you? Oh, yeah. That, let me tell you about the embarrassing mm -hmm. story of the very first album mm -hmm. I bought. So I went to a record store with my uh, mother or my grandmother, I think it was, and uh, on vinyl I bought this thing. It's like Olivia Newton-John's Greatest Hits, except what I didn't realize what it said was, sounds like Olivia Newton-John. And I got it home and I'm like, oh my God, what is this? And I was so embarrassed. More than anything, I was embarrassed that I had made this mistake, right? So yeah, I think that's a very big deal. And again, the, well, I mean, and here's where we get into the nuances of at least American copyright law, which is this notion of um, fair use and specifically one clause that has to do with, is it transformative? Right. So the example you're using, the less transformative it is, the more effective it is because I don't know the difference. Right. Whereas with uh, at least that piece of fair use mm. law, I'd better be able to tell the difference. Otherwise, it's not transformative. <laughs> like if you didn't transform mm. it, then it's going to look the same. <laughs> so, so I think there's a big difference between sampling Beyonce and mm. adding her to some other collage you're making mm. versus no, really, we're going to make it sound exactly like her and make it and make the make the tell the AI mm. to make a song like mm. she would make. Mm. Like, I think there's a mm. little bit of a difference. <laughs> so, pulling this all into back into UX and design. Oh, sure. <laughs> but if you if you must. <laughs> So, so what becomes our responsibility as designers within mm -hmm. this space? Yeah, uh, thinking about power, as you said, but yeah. also about making people aware and acknowledge what's going yeah. on because there's so much going on now that we aren't aware of. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lovely thing mm -hmm. on. Uh, Wik I was looking at Wikipedia entry for uh, DJ Shadows and introducing, mm -hmm. which is just a classic uh, electronica, like just album um and at the end of it it's like for every song they show you what's sampled like because it was, it was it was funny too because i was listening to it, so like wait is that from that john carpenter movie oh my god and i will yeah it is oh my god i got that you know um and again john carpenter is going to be fine um but uh i think it is very important from a content perspective to be transparent and say just like that little button i can click that shows me the source code on any web page i go to it is important that i be able to see like show your work Right? These are the different things that I used. Or if I go to an art museum and I see a, a, a work, it'll say all the materials that were mm -hmm. used. This is like you know oil on a, this canvas with these elements involved. Blah, 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 blah. I think it is, it is in right relationship to the other artists that you relied on to create your work to show your work and say this, these are the, as, and, and as much detail as makes sense, these are the, mm. the artists that I'm lifting from here that, that have influenced mm. me that are either directly or indirectly like recognized here. And from, so that's from a content perspective and like what do you want to reveal to the user from a, a UX perspective? Like I'm not joking. When you're building that AI, start thinking about the filters you can use to differentiate for power. Like, Participatory design and other sort of more modern forms of design are thinking very much about power in the design uh, framework and like when is my research being being exploitative? When is my design approach being exploitative, right? So are there things that I can build into the product itself or into the tool itself that account for that or at least attempt to account for that? So yeah, I would love to sort of have that kind of, you know, AI exercise of saying – 
I was actually joking with my friend about this the other day, like how many AI tools when they're trying to create a norm are basically just pulling from a bunch of white people. <laughs> because yeah. when it looks at the web, mm. that's most of what it's going to see because the web was built by a bunch of white people and mm. then there's therefore populated by a bunch. So I was saying like, can we create an AI that is effectively creating, you know, the black internet or the, mm. uh, the oppressed internet? Like it's like, it's only tell to only pull from examples of people. Like if you really want to be blunt, don't put any white people in the sample. Right. Mm. But, but pull from people who are the targets of oppression mm. and see what kind of results you get then. Cause that would be, very interesting, right? I think you'd start to see a very different picture. I think the closest we have to this now is when I do look at people who are the targets of oppression or who are artists, and I'm finding that they're doing the most interesting things with tools like generative AI. So I have a friend, uh, Rashid, who's doing this amazing work creating like, you know, Stevie Wonder action figures and all this stuff mm -hmm. using mid-journey. It's just amazing, you know, or, or like, like I just said, Laurie Anderson, who uh, is clearly coming at this from a social justice lens and is thinking about things like there's an incredible piece uh, a number of pieces she's done around um a person at who at 14 was sent to Guantanamo Bay after mm. um 9-11 like these really horrific stories that if you just let an AI loose would never find mm. but because she is coming from a very particular point of view she's able to use these tools for very particular mm. ends I forget what the question was, but that's where we got. <laughs> oh, 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 the, the UXB. So yes. yeah, I would. I, so yeah. I want. So I want Laurie Anderson's mm. UX mm. mind when we're building these mm. things, right? I want my friend mm. Rashid's mind when we're building the UX mm. part of this. But it's really be intentful. Yeah. Don't be lazy. Yeah. Don't just swallow everything. Just and make sure that you know yeah. where you want to go. And and mm. and do it for a reason other than just mm. making money. Like mm. just to bring back to ownership. It's like do mm. it for a reason that's mm. thinking more about the commons mm. and thinking more about reciprocity. I think that's a reciprocity. I think is a fantastic UX lens that we just mm. never use. Uh, just to give you a small example, Sadie Redwing um, did a podcast with uh, I'm blanking on his name, but um, uh, but uh, uh, on um, uh, in inclusive design. And um, one of the things she talks, she's a Native American or indigenous uh, designer. And one of the things she talks about is reciprocity as a concept in design. And so the example might be, let's say I'm designing the printing press. I might design that and say, oh, we just made our book, first book. Yay, ship it, right? We're done. Whereas she would say, okay, yeah, but we made that book using what? Mm. Trees. Okay, well, let's plant a tree for every book we make. Mm. Now the design cycle is complete, right? So we never think giving back is not a step in mm. the like build, measure, learn, you know, iterative process. Mm. But wouldn't it be great if it mm. were? Build, yeah. measure, learn, give back, build, measure, learn, give back. Like that would be a really interesting step. Regeneration as the next step after sustainability. Yes. Yeah, mm. exactly. Well, I mean, I think that's how you mm. get to sustainability. Mm. Like if you don't plant mm. another tree, you don't get any more trees, therefore yeah. no more books, yeah. you know? <laughs> Well, something something we well, not joke about, but we've we've discussed for a few times. Per just the whole speed at which the 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 global internet has has forced us to look upon the concepts of countries and those countries' laws and communities in a mm -hmm. in a very different way. Because you know, pre-internet places were exotic. Yeah, you know, it was how they did it over there. Yeah, so on. There was there was lots of separation um, for good or bad, but there was there was there was ways which meant you could you could keep diverse parts just slightly far enough away so they didn't clash. Yeah. Whereas the global internet has meant wait, we've got a massive big pot of all of it all at once, and we're staring at constantly and spinning stuff out of it, and shit's happening, and mm -hmm. it doesn't always look good at the um, end of it all. Mm. Well, it's 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 interesting though because I think that. I think that humans use tools the way humans are going to use tools. Because again, I was just something I was sitting out um, 
uh, looking out at uh, Stockholm and thinking about recent issues around immigration uh, that not just y'all, but everywhere, everyone is facing and how immigration is basically driving a lot of people to the far conservative right and mm. just getting literal Nazis or, or ex-Nazis like kind of like into power. And part of my mind was just, oh my God, borders are silly. Borders, well, like, what's the point? Borders are so, <laughs> can you find me a good user story for a border that isn't like really racist, right? Uh, and that, that thing with the internet really breaking that down, like I think it's gone in both directions. It's on the one hand, it is introducing people to ideas about how people do it in other places. Although what I found is I need to physically go there to, for that to really hit home. Mm. Right? I had a vague, like, so I just came back from Japan. They do it different in Japan. They do it in this very powerful collectivist, let's actually try being nice to each other kind of way that blows my mind. Like I can read about it, but being there and in it is totally different. Um, but what's weird is because humans use tools they want, they want, the way they want to use them, the internet has been used as well to create and manifest and like just cycle these stories about oh immigrants are dangerous hmm. right um which if you've ever met one or spent time with one odds are you are going to find that uh no <laughs> they're just like me hmm. like they have different cultures maybe but like like me they want to have like a safety and maybe a family and maybe food right if i rely on the internet for that experience what i am as likely to get for a number of reasons, is stories that are more fear-mongering. So in a weird way, <laughs> the internet made borders worse. <laughs> I don't know how it pulled it off, but because mm -hmm. it wasn't the internet, it was us. But we, in a weird way, we find, found a way to use the internet, which is borderless, to make borders worse. So it, humans, man, I don't That's know. Really, yeah, yeah <laughs> we, we created a, 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 a digital thing disconnected <laughs> from the physical thing <laughs> um, that didn't fully reflect the physical thing. Yeah. And you need to go to uh, cultures to experience them, like yeah. say in Japan and so on. That one feels like a to-be-continued oh, for yeah, some of yeah, yeah. you. You do not want to, like, <laughs> them in my podcast should be Don't Get Me Started. Like that's <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, David. Thank it was you. loads of fun. fun. Yeah. yeah. I have to say what I really, really appreciate about how David frames all his topics, whatever he's talking about, really. Uh, he's, he's so curious. So he's just pulling information from all these different topic areas and applying a systems thinking perspective. For me, he is one of those designers who is constantly looking at design from a systems perspective. So he's seeing a fuller picture than m the rest of us are, in a sense. Uh, I wonder, too, whether he his own... Um, rules of collaborative conversation, even though even though what we did now wasn't arguably a collaborative conversation, mm. um, not in the traditional sense of that. But his his three rules, which he he brought up in his talk at From Business to Buttons, um, it, they're just in his mind all the time. Yeah. Um, I mean, okay, now I've mentioned them again. I've got to say what they are. Um, neither of us have the answer. Neither of us will win, and. We are here to create something new. And, and that's just a wonderful way to approach any conversation, really. Um, uh, yeah, and I think that's what you mean. Looking back, I know the systems thinking aspect you mentioned there as well, yeah. but looking back at our conversation, he, he clearly has these deep-rooted in his um, way of handling conversations. And, and, and for lovely. someone who's written a book about cognitive bias, of course, he's trying to eliminate bias uh, in in every way he can. So that's essentially what he's doing. And he's even 
admitting to us about his bias about ownership in the beginning of the interview and saying that, well, now he was curious and now he's learning about, well, there are different ways to, uh, to look at ownership. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, again, about ownership. Uh, something else that um, I've been thinking about um, in reflection um, after, talk, after listening back to our interview with, with David is ownership versus availability. Now, in our chat, we do talk about um, the, the temporary nature of a lot of our ownership, that we're, we're leasing, we're, um, we're renting, we're borrowing yeah. um, things rather than actually owning them in the digital space. Um, but it made me think about um, how sometimes um, what's more important than the ownership is availability. That there, there are some things that it's, we would balance, so there'd be a balance there and we'd, we'd prioritize just having something um, you know, to get, possible to get hold of rather than saying, it's mine. Right. Um, and I suppose, I, I think with streaming music anyway for me, I can see that there, there's um, something very attractive about having all the world's music um, instantly available for me to listen to if I fancy listening to it. Um, and that's a different thing to me, actually owning a set of records that are mine. Um, that's an emotional thing. That's a, that's mm. a physical thing. But, but the availability is very attractive in itself. Exactly. Um, so what you said just said there made me think of, yes, I can feel something when I pick up a CD case and I have the artwork. I feel something emotionally because I bought it as, at a specific time and place probably. Uh, and I've listened to it in specific places as well. Uh, so it, it triggers something, but I'm not triggered in the same way by, by, by scrolling down like a playlist in a Spotify. No, exactly. And, and so the availability too. Another example would be, um, you know, if I, if I owned um, a streetlight that was, you know, I put a streetlight on the edge of my property um, to shine on the, the edge of my drive. Mm. And then, you know, that's going to that's gonna leak light onto the, the, the road next to it and even the properties next to it. Um, you know, I, yes. I, I I don't need to own that street light, really. I mean, yeah. I, I, what's most important there is that I have light available to me. This is why we end up with with you know government provided lighting or council provided yeah, so lighting, whatever municipal lighting. Because the, the availability yeah. and the common good aspect, the, mm. the availability is much more important than the ownership. We don't need to own street lights. Um, but you want influence. You want influence over if there are street lights or not. So possibly, so but ultimately, if something's if something's um, absolutely available, mm. <laughs> as in to its absolute extreme, yeah. then <laughs> then there will be always be lighting, street lighting in every place that you would ever need lighting to it. Well, um, but now we can get into light pollution in some places. I don't want it, so it's it's still yeah it's okay going the, to be the, complicated. The pulling back into the digital side of things, yeah. then yeah, I mean we the ultimate music streaming platform would be one streaming platform because if there's multiple platforms that reduces mm. availability because then you'd have to work out which platform something is available on mm. um so you'd have one global platform um with no fees with <laughs> um, no fees for anyone <laughs> no no fees for anyone because it's always available and 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 everyone was happy with this platform <laughs> You see, I mean, we're laughing already because we understand the ridiculousness of, of some of these things. Um, um, because as, At the same time, we're joking about sometimes how, how art, artists don't get paid when they are on Spotify. Uh, yeah. and, and, and David was alluding to this, of course, in, the, in, 
when he was talking about you pay instead, you pay the maker, the Patreon type services. Yeah. What you want to pay for is for someone to keep making the stuff, not perhaps paying for the stuff they already made, but you want them to keep doing things. Exactly. You want mm. to keep, like we, we, we alluded to, keep their time available for being creative. Yeah. Um, but then we get into a, uh, then we do get into the whole, um, oh, as as David did too, the capitalist side of it, or the kind of um, um, the desire to earn more shiny things, <laughs> or yeah. or more money, or whatever you want to, whatever drives you, and mm-hmm. the you get past the point maybe where you have received enough um, to free up your time, and you start getting to wealth accumulation. And this could easily get very political now, uh, this discussion. Yeah, well, <laughs> it could really. But it also ties into uh, what I brought up in the intro uh, and what, what, he, what, what he said towards the end about build, measure, learn and give back. So yeah. uh, if we bring it into design perspective of actually realizing how much uh, what you are designing is costing in terms of social values and, and, and social effort uh, and environmental costs – then there are so many ways in which you can also make sure that your efforts are paid back into all those costs. Yeah. And I think you can, as a designer, um, help influence that ownership versus availability balance as well. Um, oh, yeah. You know, you don't, you, we don't have to implement DRM in a way which stops you from having some long-term ownership. Exactly. But you can That's also make things yeah. available. So there's a there's a balance, mm. and I think you, we can. We and can I think I mean, it. as people are realizing that they don't own anything anymore, I think as people become aware, so with increased awareness, there will be new business models that actually accommodate these different types of ownership. Yeah, new business models, but also new solutions, which yeah. aren't necessarily business models. Very nice, exactly. This year. We are actually going to be at From Business to Buttons again. Yay! In May. Yep. And we will be recording more interviews with this year's um, speakers and guests at um, From, Business to Button, From Business to Buttons here in Stockholm. On May 24th is when it's happening. And uh, speakers have been announced. Workshops have been announced. Uh, I'm going to start reading from the webpage here. We've got Jason Masut, we've got Arathi Krishnan, we've got Christina Joy Whitaker, we've got Lou Down, Cheryl Kababa, and Chris Nossel. Some of those those people you've noticed we have interviewed on this podcast before. And if you want mm. me and Per part of your next conference event or in-house training, then you know you can just get in touch and have a little chat to us about it and see if we can arrange something. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Why can't rappers take holidays? I don't know, James. Why can't rappers take holidays? They always forget to pack. <laughs> you see, you don't know. You don't know anything about. I music, don't get do you? it. <laughs> <laughs>
No, you, you see, if you knew anything about, if you knew, if you had some knowledge about music, you'd understand. Yeah. Okay. Tupac. So it has to do with rapping the music and packing something, which which has another well, meaning, I guess. Yeah. And I, well, no, it's 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 a rap artist, Tupac. Oh, they forget Tupac. Oh. You see, Tupac is a well, rap uh, yes, artist. Well, yes, that I know. Actually. They forget Tupac. Oh. So I, I shouldn't oh have to explain. <laughs> 